Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and I love cheese. And I love you. Before we get to episode 78, I wanted to just share that there's a trigger warning here. Uh, I talk in detail about my experience with anorexia in this episode, and there are some triggering words. I do mention uh, weight and, and things like that and, and food, and so if you are triggered by that, just a fair warning. I, I want to be fair about that. Um, yeah, so in this episode, episode 78, I, uh, I chat with Tony the Therapist. Tony actually interviews me about my struggle with anorexia and why I needed to change my heart and how really ultimately vulnerability and empathy and inward looking truly saved my life uh, in a number of ways. So I really get into all of that detail uh, and I, I, I really hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you connect with it and relate to it. Uh, this episode actually is being released in coordination with a, a little piece of writing I did uh, along the same subject over at Mental Health America. So I'll make sure to link that. Uh, I think that comes out Tuesday, June 4th. So when that comes out, I'll make sure to share that and link that in the show notes for this episode too. So look out for that. There are a couple of things I wanted to talk about before we get to today's episode. Uh, I mentioned briefly in an Instagram story if you're not following Yumi Empathy on Instagram, at Yumi Empathy, go do, go do that. Follow, follow. It's fun. But I was talking about, I was talking with my therapist about this. So if you haven't listened to episode 74, which is all about validation, uh, you should absolutely do that. It was, it was, uh, I share very vulnerably an experience I had with my mother uh, where I felt very invalidated and it was very upsetting and, now I'm working through with my therapist how my relationship with my mother looks like. What does that look like? What boundaries am I going to be creating uh, for her? You know, just like I, I have for my father, for instance. You know, I I uh, I don't see my father, but I, I I or I don't have a relationship with my father rather, but I I do see him on occasion at family gatherings, for instance. And that has always been hard for me. That has always been really hard for me. Like I still, it still gives me so much anxiety leading up to it. It's still a pain to be there, in the, even in his presence. And, you know, a part of it I'm realizing is like, I feel as if it's not fair. Like I feel like as, as if I have to do the work you know, but he's the one that has caused this thing, you know, uh, and I feel the same way with, with my mother, for instance. So, it like, fe it feels unfair, but um, the truth is that I, I do need to hold two truths, and those truths are, it's not okay what happened, right? It's not the things that, let's talk about my father, the things that my father did to me 
uh, are not okay. But I can also make nice and take the high road. Like those two truths have to be true uh, for me, I think, because I'm not there yet, but I, and I, I, I think I've gotten better because I'm stripping myself of joy when I go to a party and I'm there to support my brother and his kids, for instance, you know, and I want to be there and I want to be present and, 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 and joyful and, and playing with the kids. And, and, and I don't want that to be tainted by my feeling of like, if I go and shake my father's hand and just, you know, say hello, I be civil like I'm somehow giving in to him. Like I'm somehow saying to him, oh, it's all okay. Or I'm forgiving him in some way, right? Like that, that is, that is, that's false. Like I don't, that, that is not what that means. That is not what that means. But for some reason, like that is, that has been the sort of obstacle in my head that, that I have to overcome. So there are two truths. It's not okay. And I can, I can say hello and it's still not be okay and allow, allow it to affect me in such a profound emotional way. And so the same is true with my mom. I don't know what that will look like now. I have a sense that I don't know, you know, I, I can't speak for her. I love my mom and I want a relationship with my mom. But I also know that she deeply hurt me and I feel like she doesn't see me or accept me. So how, how do I reconcile that? You know, and so I, you know, I'm working to a place where, you know, I can't, I can't hold her hostage, right? I can't say, oh, she just has to say sorry. But, you know, before I even see her, like, maybe that's not fair. I'm still working through it. But I I want to get to a place where I can hold those two truths and recognize them as truths and important to me. And not be impacted so much emotionally. I'm working on it. So that's that's kind of what I, I've been thinking about lately. And, and I, I wonder if you can relate. If you can, you know, definitely let me know on Instagram at Yumi Empathy or Twitter at Yumi Empathy. Uh, we also have a Facebook group for Yumi Empathy. It's a, it's a private group. Uh, if you want to connect with other feely humans, it's at facebook.com slash groups slash Yumi Empathy. Go there. Say hello. Share your heart. Okay. What else do I want to say? Do I want to say anything else? Again, there's a trigger warning for this episode. Talk a lot about eating disorders. Uh, but I really, really, truly hope you enjoy this episode. It's, it's, it means a lot to me. Uh, vulnerability, empathy, inward looking. These three tenets, these core components of my health and recovery are so important to me. And, uh, and I talk about it in this episode. So hope you listen. Let me know if you like it. As always, um, I'd love to hear your reviews in Apple. You know, uh, I love to, uh, see when you DM me on Instagram or comment on my post and say, wow, what an amazing episode. Do more of that. Cause that makes my day and I love you for it. Um, okay. I guess that's it. I hope you enjoy this episode, episode 78, on how vulnerability, empathy, and inward looking saved my life. Enjoy.
Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our neurosis, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that makes us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. You Me Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. And today, this is not Known Wells. This is Tony Romike, licensed marriage and family therapist. But I'm with Known Wells. Hello. Hello, Known. I'm here. We've switched roles today. I'm your guest. You are my guest (laughs) on You Me Empathy. It's so nice for you to join me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, you know, it's 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 always my pleasure. So the <laughs> tables shift this have computer literally back turned. The tables have turned. Thank you. You did incredibly well, well there. Thank you. First time I got to do that. <laughs> I just figured you had it memorized. I didn't uh, know we had a cheat sheet we could read from. Yeah, so. I know. I'm a cheater. Mm-hmm. I, I have just a terrible memory. I could probably do okay, but I bet you, you know. could Probably almost do it at this point. Probably, right? maybe. I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, I don't know. Give me a couple more years. Yeah. So, well, well, listeners, uh, today is a special you me empathy. Well, they're all special you me empathies. But, I think so. But, but today's a little yeah. unique. Again, in that I'm taking the role of known Wells, and um, I'm going to actually be talking to known. And instead of known asking me or another listener questions uh, or guest questions, I get to ask him questions. So exciting. Exciting. This is, I'm, I'm excited. Good. I'm excited too. Awesome. So real quickly, um, if for listeners maybe who don't know who I am, but if you listen to the show with any regularity, uh, I'm usually on following up a particular issue that Nona has spoken with a guest about and, and usually just try and talk into it from, from somebody who works in the mental health field's perspective and, and offer, you know, what I can about a particular subject. So, but I am a licensed marriage and family therapist here in California. I'm licensed with the Board of Behavioral Sciences. My license number is LMFT47805. And I have a private practice in Newport Beach, California, where I see clients. And uh, and I love doing what I do. And again, and I love doing this. So I'm so, glad you're here. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we get to do this and, and do this unique format get the listeners an opportunity to get to know a little bit about the man behind you, me empathy. <laughs> but, uh, but we do have a kind of a particular topic that we're talking about today. And it's actually specific to something you've struggled with that, that you and I have talked about right. in great lengths as friends. And, um, but it's something again, I know you're willing to share with the listeners today and it's about your own struggle and journey with anorexia nervosa. That's right. So yeah. why don't you just, Give the listeners, if you don't mind, just, you know, some history and background on your, you know, particular journey with that sure, disorder. Sure, sure. And look at you being so good with the transitions. You're just a natural. Oh, well, I've been watching you now for, <laughs> you know, 15 months or how long we've done this. Yeah. I've learned been, from the best. Uh, yeah. A year and a half, essentially. Year yeah. Uh, thank you for that um, introduction. I So, my experience with uh, anorexia, my eating disorder... 
started, um, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of writing about this and a lot of thinking about this over the last 10 years or so. Eh, not 10 years, maybe in my 30s. But I do look back sometimes and still have some fuzziness. Mm. And uh, I imagine um, that's pretty common for any sort of traumatic experiences. But it all, for me, I think it started around the time I was 18. And I was um, out of the house. I was in college. And I felt... Um, I felt lost. Mm. I didn't like school. I felt uh, alone in school. I felt isolated. I felt I had a lot of self-esteem issues. Um, I never really did well in school, and I didn't like school. I didn't mm. like the structure of it. Yeah. And I think I was struggling my first year, and, and, and the way I struggled was being acting out and yeah. you know getting into trouble and and also being a bit wayward and and you know i was sort right. of living out of my car a bit and it wow. was kind of like just me being a little road bum you know a little bit right um and in my freshman year of college i went to work in alaska on a fishing boat and <clears throat> i remember feeling on that trip um the the sort of the feelings around starting to restrict uh, mm. food, and I I don't think I gave it much thought in the moment. But looking back, like I was recently looking back on pictures of that uh, time, and I was starting to lose some weight, and mm. I could tell. And I I and I was still I was twenty years old at that point. Um, I think because on my way back, I turned twenty one in Seattle, we went to a Seattle Mariners game. Uh, anyways, I started to restrict at that point at, you know, at, at 20. Um, but before that I was essentially mediating my parents' marriage. Like I, mm -hmm. I, that's, that, that's like a big life event for me. Um, and a, and a traumatic one. So my parents were struggling. Um, I sort of countless times throughout my mom's marriage to my father, told her, like, come on, leave this guy. You need to leave this guy. <laughs> like, wow. And, you know, she never did. And, and, and that was maybe not fair of me to, to do that. Um, and my mom and I recently had a breakthrough, which oh, wow. we can get to later. Sure. But um, essentially, I was between them. My mom would sort of cry on my shoulder. My dad would, like, yell about my mom on one hand. And I'd go back and forth, and I just felt so... I felt like an emotional rag doll. I felt just torn and I felt like I had like not like I being a very feely person and very sensitive, mm. uh, always have been, um, feeling like none of my sort of emotional effort was making an impact, wow. like was very hard for me. Yeah, because what I'm hearing so far is is, you know, that really that became a significant role for you, like you said, as mediator between your parents. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, all, your, all, your description also of not feeling like you really fit in. You weren't fitting in right. in school. You didn't feel like you had your tribe or your place. And and it also sounds like, you know, you, again, you were, you said emotional ragdoll. Like you had yeah. just been, you know, which I think we can all get a visual on, right? Just, sure. just torn and tattered. And, 
And this idea that, you know, who am I, right? You know, like you're 18, you know, all the efforts that I poured out into my parents didn't work. Yeah. So, every, you know, I gave something 110% of myself and that didn't work. So, I can't even imagine how many emotions that you now were having to sit with. And, but also not having really developed yourself, you know, it sounds like there was so much focus on you playing the role of mediator and yeah. So I'm hearing a lot of emotions and maybe not really knowing a lot about where you were at that point in your life then. Oh, 100%. I, and I, 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 a part of that is sort of my journey before that, you know, just growing up like in my household with my dad who was terrified to me. Mm. Like I, I was terrified of him. He was very violent, very ma- manipulative, emotionally, um, not always physically violent, but at times could be physically violent, um, very emotionally violent, like just would, you know, lock into something and just make you feel like total shit, wow. and like a total, like you don't deserve to live. Like mm-hmm. he, like he made you feel that way. Uh, very arrogant, uh, very volatile. Uh, I always use the word tyrant cause he was very tyrannical. Um, you know, and, and, and some pretty traumatic things happened uh, in my childhood. And I, I, I always use the word heart guard. I developed right. this sort of protection around my heart that was a protection against him. Mm. Um, but also, um, you know, I was very sensitive. I felt everything. So it was a protection against kind of all of that. And, and, and I, I think it served me for a time, but eventually it, to right. your point, it, um, you know, stop me from doing the work that I needed to do to self-actualize. Right, right. And create an identity. Well, because it sounds like you, you know, you, you put yourself into a bunker, right? Yeah. And there's only so much I you can Brendan do I was Brendan Fraser in a, in a bunker in that one movie. Yeah. Blast from the past. Yeah. 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 So, how much growth are you going to get, right, if you're living in a bunker? Yeah. No, um, not much. Right. And I, I, I think I've had to come to terms with that. Like, I think I, I think there was a time where I was hard on myself for like not having that growth, but yeah. I couldn't. Right. Like, even like you mentioned, like being feeling like a bit of an outcast. I did. I had friends, but I didn't. I always felt like I was being hurt by them. <laughs> wow. Like it was. Um, and I, I. I don't want to put that on them. Like that was just the place I was. I don't, I didn't, I didn't connect around the things I, I think I really deep down in my heart wanted to connect around. Yeah. So I was sort of creating false sort of things mm. around like my identity, but it wasn't really my identity, you know? Yeah. It, so it sounds like you're not ascribing any malicious intent to these people. No, absolutely not. It's it just, no. this is the way I filtered life. This is the yeah. way I was experiencing, you know, interpersonal yeah. relationships. And yeah. So, so it, I'm thinking from the listener's perspective as you're sharing this, that, that these are the things that you've now come to learn about your early history that you think ultimately then started culminating in your food restricting. Yeah. Is this kind of how you've deconstructed it now i think so i think so because what the listeners don't know maybe is you've done a lot of therapy i mean you've you've been active in doing your own work and uncovering 
you know, what are some of these deeper core issues, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really the last 10, 15 years, like not all of them were successful, you know, like I've had lots of uh, setbacks and ups and downs and, you know, um, I think abuses at times, like I think I, there was a time where I, I feel like I was abusing alcohol and there was a time where I had some relapsing sort of stuff with my eating disorder, but especially the last 10 years, I think I've really made really healthy efforts in my recovery. But yeah, like at, so in that, like feeling, you know, being the mediator with my parents, just feeling so out of control and I just poured, I I feel like I poured that right into like, just, all right, I'm just going to control the fuck out of my body. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. like, you know, it, like it, in a way I felt like maybe it was a little fuck you to my parents, you know, like this weird sort of adolescent fuck you to like, Hey, watch me die, you know? And so I would, started to restrict, I would overexercise, I would, I would run for like 20, 30 miles at a time. Wow. Uh, until like everything hurt, like, and basically to overshadow like the other hurt, you know, like, so I wanted the physical pain to overshadow overshadow the emotional emotional, pain. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would take my mom's sort of aerobics classes and I, I, and I started to just wane and, you know, I think even then, like, my mom would talk to me about it. I don't recall any specific conversations, but I do have a sense, looking back at that time, I mean, it's 20 years ago. Right. Um, 20 years ago? Yeah, 20 years ago. Mm. Gosh, I'll be 38 this year. Um, He calls me old. Holy (laughs) shit. Yeah, you know, I I did have the sense from my mother, because I... You know, I should say that I took a semester off from college to, uh, as I put it in my brain, care for mom, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, looking back, like maybe it wasn't the best choice because I was living with her in a place I love, but it became like this such an isolating experience because it was out, you know, my mom lives out in the woods, right. you know, in the middle of nowhere. It's beautiful, but like I was just so isolated mm-hmm. and in my illness, you know. And I, I did get the sense from her that there was worry. Yeah. But I don't know if, I mean, I certainly wasn't ready to heal yet. I wanted to ride it. Like, I feel like I, I wanted to ride, like, because there is a, one of the things that you hear about, or I'll just put it on me. Yeah. I felt a bit of a high and very powerful in in sort of the control of anorexia yeah i've heard that before you know? yeah like there is a a strength to that right like, that i felt you know and i wanted to ride that high uh right up until death wow close to it <laughs> wow right you know and so Would i was you with, describe it almost as a sense of empowerment like feeling for sure empowered? yeah for sure yeah i mean there is a great um, and, and I'll put a trigger warning at the top of this episode, but there's lots of triggering words going on here. But I felt, um, yeah, great power in, you know, choosing to just eat very little yeah. and, 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 and being very methodical about it. And, um, 
knowing that I can still at that time, uh, you know, 19, you know, 20 years old, still do physical activities. Yeah. In spite They're, of. In spite of it. Right. Right. I said, it's like, oh, I had this willpower. Right. Eventually I got to a point where I couldn't do shit. Yeah. You know, I couldn't barely move, but um, yeah, it felt good. Yeah, and I've heard that. So, you know, not surprising to hear that there was a, you know, almost euphoria at times, it sounds like you're describing, you know, that, that came and, and maybe that was, you know, I'd be curious to even understand that on a neurochemical level sure. in terms of physiology, you know, in addition to the the psychological yeah. and the emotional. But, you know, one thing I, I know because I know you that the listeners may not is that and you had mentioned taking one of your mom's aerobic classes, but maybe what the listeners also don't understand is you grew up in a very health conscious family. Yes. And you mm -hmm. also, you know, grew up specifically with a mom who was very much into exercise and, you know, and so tell. Yeah. No, that's the, I think I've thought about that uh, component of it. Um, and again, uh, this is in no way of putting blame on my mother. It's just the environment I was raised in. So my mother, uh, started, you know, being an aerobics instructor in the seventies. Yeah. You know, she used to work right under, um, Richard Simmons. Yeah. And, uh, so that was like, that was her whole identity. And so we had, she was also a P, our own P instructor in junior high. She had, you know, fitness equipment and, and, you know, she had, uh, you know, Reebok step boxes and, you know, and, and, all this stuff, uh, and you know, she was in leotards. You know, yeah, like, right? You know that that was her world. And then also, <clears throat> yeah, we were raised like super healthy. Like growing up, especially early on, like there was no sugar in the house. Mm -hmm. She baked with molasses. Wow. Like it was all we called her Odie Weedy lady. <laughs> you know, it was all just health. You know, it was right. all like just. I mean, my mom's a bit of a hippie. Yeah, you know, and and that I think she gets it from like her growing up on the ranch and and sort of in that natural environment, yeah, right. you know. But yeah, growing up like having that, you know, that was a conscious part of it. Like I th I do think I think it's good to bring that up because I do think that is a component of it because that that was the world I knew, and you know, eating things like <clears throat> quote unquote junk food was never in our world yeah i do remember actually one time like we were on and the other thing is we were always active as kids. right you know we were always soccer players i was on a club uh, running team as mm -hmm. a eight nine ten year old and i remember after our running practices uh my mom would maybe once every few months would and i think probably just out of exhaustion because my dad wasn't really helping uh Remember there was like a, a certain point where McDonald's would like on a Tuesday, there were like 25 cent hamburgers yeah. and then you can buy like a little bucket of fries. Right. Remember that? Yeah, they were yeah. like 50 cents right. or something, you know? Uh, we would do that like on a Tuesday. Wow. And, you know, she'd spent like five bucks on us, you know, uh, us boys. And uh, we would uh, yeah partake in like McDonald's and it was just like, what is this? Wow. What is this <laughs> magical chemical in my brain, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, aside from that, it was super healthy, con you know, healthy, conscious eating and, and very mindful of that. And so that, that definitely had to play a role. Well, you know, and, and again, you know, probably important for us to point out that, you know, we're not making any correlations 
you know, between a healthy lifestyle and, and healthy nutrition. No, with, no, no. You know, eating disorders. But just the idea <clears throat> that, you know, you grew up in a house where in combination with all the other factors that, you know, you lived and experienced, the idea of, of just taking all these individual pieces, right? And saying, you know, that this is kind of how it makes up the whole puzzle. And recognizing that you did grow up in a house in which there was discipline, you know, with regards to what you ate, you know, and the fact that con- you were continually exposed to uh, partly what would be, uh, I'm assuming, because we've talked about this again, this body conscious yeah, and health conscious yeah. lifestyle, right? I think you know? I took pride in it, too. Like Hearing you say that, I, I think I took a little pride in that we did eat in a healthy way. Mm. Like, I remember getting gruff from friends who'd be like what is your pantry like oh, right and i'd Where's be the like, oreos at you know i don't Where's the twinkies like i think maybe there was moments early on where i felt a little bit of shame in that you know from them but like there was i think i got to a point where i was just like yeah i'm proud of this hmm. this this is a good thing you know yeah. so maybe like there was a, a bit of like yeah pride and and joy and like hey this is like a good thing in my life yeah Maybe. Sounds interesting. Yeah. So, to take the listeners back, in in terms of at least your timeline, one of the things that you were talking about when we started kind of going off on some of these related tangents was being on the fishing boat in Alaska. Yeah. And so, pick us up kind of again from that place. And like you said, starting to recognize that there was food restriction. You know, you were starting to restrict your food. You were starting to notice um, a change in body. You know, you were you know probably starting to see... You know, particularly yeah. in the shoulder area, I know, you know, people tend to see that first. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I like looking back on that kid, um, I was 20 when I was on the boat uh, in Alaska uh, as a commercial salmon fisherman. I was, uh, it's called gill netting or long lining. Um, and I was, uh, you know, my job was to just like pick fish out of the net, you know, as fast as humanly possible. We didn't sleep much and we didn't eat much and that served me, yeah. you know. But I remember uh, we had a uh, cook on board. There was four people on this little boat, and um, uh, the cook would make spam a lot. Oh yeah, and I I think I think I used that like looking back on it. I think I used that as an opportunity to say that's disgusting. Spam's disgusting. But yeah. really, it was a restriction. Oh, wow. Really, it was me saying because I needed I needed food. You were probably burning. So oh my many gosh! Calories I mean, we hard, would right? work for. 40 hours straight at a time sometimes. Uh, And the captain would just like drink whiskey and yell at us. Like it was like such a a romantic picture, you know, of this captain. Uh, But yeah, like I need, I mean, I should have eaten the spam, you know, like, but I used it as an opportunity to say, oh no, I don't, I don't eat that kind of food, you know. Um, But yeah, I I remember um, being very, withdrawn and emotional and um like i was there with a friend from high school and i don't he had i mean poor pat and i haven't seen pat in ages um but he was a sweet guy and and really sort of happy-go-lucky and stuff he didn't know what was going on Mm. and he couldn't have known and and he certainly didn't know how to deal with it you know and and so i was starting to wither away and struggle emotionally. And I remember we had the opportunity to, um, cause we were out at sea for four months and I got the, we, we, at one point the, the captain, 
um, gracious sweetheart that he is, gave us one opportunity to use his satellite phone to call home. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and Pat, like, called his, his family, and he was talking to them. And I was getting real excited, you know, because I was going to call my mom. Right. Check in, you know. And, uh, you know, I was sitting there listening to Pat, and he was just, like, engaging with his family. And, like, he, like, he was even, like, crying, you know. It was, wow. like, such a joyful moment. And, uh, and then I remember calling my mom and getting the answering machine and I couldn't, like, I, I think I left a message. I wish we still had that message, but I think I left a message and it was just so sad. Wow. Like, it was just like, and I remember crying after that and I was just so devastated because I feel like I needed, I needed saving. I needed, wow. I needed like an emotional connection. I needed someone... Yeah anyone to to have some recognition of what i was going through but i wasn't ready to talk about it you right. know yeah and i think my mom had this recognition but we weren't talking about it yet but i need and and you know that the the alaska trip is a smaller version of the whales trip yeah. which is me uh deciding to run away from it you know and right. and, and like and, tr and, and isolate in a way and, and thinking that like, oh, I'll have this like beautiful life experience. But um, it was really like trying to probably distract from the emotional pain I was experiencing. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> I remember getting back from the trip, from the, uh, the fishing trip. And we had, uh, I was riding, I was driving a uh, big, um, Chevy pickup at that time. Yeah. We drove up there <clears throat> and um, and we parked it in uh, like this, um, it was like a storage facility with like gates and like, you know, like locked up and secure. Right. Uh, we had to park it there and we left, you know, my car, my truck there for four months. We got back, we realized someone broke into the car and like stole, stole my camera and stole all my pictures from the oh, road wow. trip and uh stole his guitar and and i again i broke down again i was just crying wow and and i you know it is a sad thing when someone breaks into your car it's very violating but i think it's a sign that i was just so emotionally wrought with no foundation yeah. of any kind yeah and so and having been and yeah. having been so isolated yeah, right? and I know through that period. I know. I remember it was so hard to sleep on that boat. Oh my god! Like it. So the boat is a tiny little boat, and is but it's very deep because it has these big refrigerated holds oh, right. for the fish. Six of them in the back, and uh, and then there was four bunks. You know, and I I was on the bottom, and the and uh, Pat was up top, and the captain was up top and then the chef who's this big old dude was on the bottom and he snored so bad oh geez and just the lap of the water and right. his snoring i like i barely slept oh that sounds brutal it was so brutal oh, my <laughs> it was so brutal i mean it would have been brutal for anyone right let alone someone going through you know an eating disorder right you know and right. you know just like uh right what emotional difficulty why did i do that right. to myself um, so, I, yeah, I get back from that trip, and I go to school for uh, a semester, and then I 
start the process of like, oh, maybe I'll go study abroad in Swansea, Wales. Mm. I joke, it's the land with no sun. Um, which, again, why am I making this the hardest possible for me? Right. Right? You know, right. like as someone who is uh, undiagnosed, depressed at this point, right. going to a land with no sun. Right. What am I doing to myself? Um, yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like continually seeking greater deprivation, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, I, I, I go uh, study abroad, and I was there <clears throat> uh, in school for four months or so, and then I, I five months, and then I, um, my mom eventually came to visit, um, but I'll, I'll talk about the experience. So, I moved to Swansea, Wales, and... So, are you 21 around? I'm 21. Point? I'm okay. just 21 at this point. Maybe um, 21 or 22. Okay. Because I turned 21 on coming back from Alaska. Okay. So, I and, decide... And during that whole year in between, are you continually, <laughs> you know, progressing in yeah. your disorder? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's... I'm losing more and more weight. Um, I think I might have been... Uh, 145, 150 pounds. So I, I'd lost like, like at a healthy weight, actually at a healthy weight now, I'm probably, I mean, I don't know. I never weigh myself, but 165, 170. Yeah. Then younger and more muscle, like 175 Yeah. at least. And so I was down to, you know, I was down 25 pounds or so. Yeah, that's significant. You know, right. You know, by that point. Right, because you're lean. I mean, I'm lean. I've always been Yeah, I've always lean. been lean. Right. Um, I had more muscle mass right. uh, then. Um, I think I've lost it just in my old age. <laughs> Sorry, Tony. Yeah, it'll get worse. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Well, you're thick. You're oh, like, man. you know, you're muscular, unlike me. Well. Um, anyways. Thanks for calling it muscular. <laughs> well, it is a muscle, well, okay. in, a way, in a sense. There anyways. Um, so, yeah, I... I, I, I I was definitely progressing in my right. eating disorder. And so I moved there about 150 pounds then. And uh yeah, at that point just really yeah, hit the hit the gas on my anorexia. Wow. And just I mean I knew no one. Yeah. How could I not? Right. You know, I I I I made some friends um and and people I I I don't consider myself close friends to this day, but um, still connected with on social media, and I do um, cherish, yeah. and I do feel like, in a way, they saved my life. Wow. Um, How so? Well, you know, I moved into a flat with um, four other people um, from all around the world. One guy, Eugeni, was from Russia. Um, one guy was from, uh, Finland. I don't remember all their names. Uh, Nina was from Germany. Um, Francois, uh, was, no, not Francois. That's, that's French. Um, I forgot his name, but he was from France. Okay. And, uh, we were all in this flat together. And then I met a couple of, uh, three different people from New York, who okay. were who were studying there, uh, um, Jody, uh, Shreya, and Julia, um, and they were I don't know I, I I think I felt 
kinship with them. I felt, especially the folks from from the mainland, New York. You know, yeah. like I like they were. Um, eventually, I went on to like try to date Jody, like okay. after this experience, yeah. uh, which didn't turn out great. Um, and we can get in that in, into that if you want, but um, they just felt like, especially Jody. Um, I think she saw me a little bit. Yeah. Like she saw, she re- she certainly recognized that I was struggling. Yeah, and and dealing with something. Right. Um, and and uh, in the way she interacted with me, she she was there for me. Yeah. Um, and that that did feel good. But I was so gone. Wow. And um, so I would walk to c- class every day. Still, again. I took, I think it was like five different classes while I was there. Wow. Like I was taking 20th century Scottish literature, a course on Chaucer, uh, a course on William Blake, um, just like like heavy, heavy duty, right. um, like literature. Scholarly you know, literature. Scholarly stuff. Right. And I had to write papers. Wow. Like I... I I wonder if I still have some of these papers because I have no fucking clue how I got through that. Wow. Mentally. Right. Because like, the thing about eating disorders is that you're just like a fuzzy mind palace. Right. Like, it's so like... Right. Your brain literally does not have enough your calories. Your brain does not have enough calories to think. <laughs> right. But somehow I got through these classes and um, meanwhile, I was I continued to waste away and... You know, that's where <clears throat> I really started to see the physical signs mm. and things, you know, my hair was falling out, you wow. know, just big clumps. Um, every, everything hurt. My bones hurt, you know. I, yeah, describe I, the, the physical changes and... and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I was... I mean, it was the first time in life I've always been like t-shirts and shorts guy, you know. I'm still in that person. Right. Uh, I don't care about clothes. They're just, they're utilitarian, you know. But it was the first time in my life where I I was cold all the time, just wow. frigid. So, I, I wore like layers of like long sleeve and pants and stuff. Probably, well, certainly to keep me warmer. Yeah. But also a, you know, a way to hide my body, yeah. you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I was... Um, so, you knew yeah. on some level that how you were looking was not... I hated it. I oh, was disgusted. Okay. okay. I, was discuss- I was disgusted that I was there. Um, I, had, I hadn't developed the... So, you didn't necessarily have the body dysmorphic... Like in terms of looking at yourself and seeing a person who was overweight or seeing somebody who was it's it's hard to say okay like maybe the disgust came later, um thinking about it like in retrospect <clears throat> but uh it certainly didn't dissuade me from continuing to to wane, you know, did so, you have some form of mindset or goal that you were? consciously trying to achieve it's a really good question um i don't know okay i don't know i i you know i talked about like you know a fuck you to my parents i talked about like you know i want people to see what can happen when you know (laughs) like I, 
I've written about it in a way that's like, oh, this is my sort of way to say like, look, you got to open your heart, you know? Yeah, right. But like, you know, obviously I didn't have that mindset then. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard to say because there is, there is so much I remember very vividly, but there's a lot that's just so fuzzy, mm. you know? Um, so I don't know if I had any end point in mind. But I did get, I mean, so physically, I just, everything ached, you know, I just, I ascribed, I described my feet being like eggshells, essentially, oh, wow. like, they felt like I had bone spurs wow. everywhere. Like my knee, like I even went to the doctor because I felt like my knees were needed, in need of replacement, like wow. full orthoscopic replacement. Wow. Like everything just hurt constantly. I barely slept because it was so hard. To sleep, I would try. I tried to sleep in any position. It was so painful. Right, and like I said, my hair would fall out. Um, uh, you know, my skin was just so dry. Um, I, you know, bags under my eyes. Like I was just so pallid and yeah. and and just sullen. And uh, so did, yeah. do you think at this point you had any level of awareness regarding like I you know I might be dying like my I literally maybe my body literally maybe shutting down not yet okay not yet that came later because I tried to join the Swansea Running Club <laughs> of course uh, so I tried to join the club and I lasted one exercise one outing um, uh, and I remember going out there running with these guys and it was such, it was so painful because I had always been very active growing up. Like I prided myself in that. I played soccer forever. Right. You know, I ran, I skateboarded, I surfed, I adventured into the woods. I camped, you know, I was always very active. I love nature. And the realization that I could go out there and not perform just fall behind. I remember falling way behind and getting lost and having to like walk my way back because it wow. was so like I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And that realization was so hard. Wow. Like it was it was heartbreaking yeah. for me. Yeah. Um first time ever I can't do what I yeah, want to do. First time ever. Yeah. The first time ever. And I I had many more moments like that in this in this experience. Um because it took many years to really come to terms with it still. Um, but that was a moment that it was, that was heartbreaking, but, um, and I think that moment and, and a number of others in there when I was in, in Wales, um, led to, you know, the suicidal stuff that I, um, that I had, I, I would sit kind of for hours in the tub and think about, you know, dying, wow. you know, I liked, like, I, I've written about this, and I, I liked the way that my body looked in the water because it was not gross. Yeah. You know, it was kind of distorted and softened, you know, yeah. by the water. There was something romantic about that that I liked. Um, and I thought about the blood on the white porcelain and right. all these romantic images. You know, I've, I think I've always been a writer by heart, so, like, that's how I was imagining it. Um, I didn't. What did, yeah. myself. Um, what stopped you? You know, I don't know. I, so, 
I it's hard. I think that preceded a a moment I had in the doctor's office in in Wales, and I was there just getting a checkup because everything hurt yeah. and and uh, I do remember my mom telling me because I I think I was having conversations. I definitely was. So my mom and I, a couple of things, in addition to like my flatmates and people I met in Wales, a couple of things really were integral to my saving, which was my grandfather, God rest his soul, beautiful John Brewster Loomis, would send me the most silly postcards, uh, naked women, uh, you know, just just the silliest right. postcards, just with his sort of like, hey, saw saw a wild turkey today, you know, grandma's doing fine, uh, love you, right. grandpa. Yeah. You know, it was just like little, right. just kind of updates on his going on. And I, he sent me 50 of them. Wow. You know, and I still have them all. Wow. And, and uh, that was a beautiful thing that I loved and I think I looked forward to. You know? Yeah, well, it sounds somewhat connective, right? Like oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I needed it. And then, then the other thing was my mom and I, not every night, but almost every night, would get on and do like a IM chat, okay. you know, instant yeah. messenger chat. Right. And we'd just talk. And, you know, she was obviously worried about me. And yeah. <clears throat> now, did she ever voice it, you know, directly? Um, She did. Okay. You know, I do remember her telling me that, like, um, and I, I, it's hard for me, the timeline is fuzzy. I don't know if this preceded Wales or during Wales or after sort of in, you know, as I was trying to recover. Yeah. Um, but she would say like, look, all the fat in your body is surrounding your heart. Right. To protect it. You know, oh, wow. she, she would like use that language and I, I, held on to that. But I did have a moment in a doctor's office in Wales where the doctor basically said, like, your heart's going to stop. Wow. Uh, he used those words, and I, that was an, a wake-up call. Mm. Like, I, I feel like in that moment, I, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to die. Wow. Um, now... But I didn't know how. I didn't know how to like. Yeah, it's all, I don't know how to live, but I don't want to die. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's so it's such a confusing place right. to be, and I wanted to get out of it, but I also held on to my anorexia so strongly um, that it was just like it was hard. But who would I be without this? Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, I I did again. I love the control of it, and um, I remember starting to smoke and and. Like, I would basically eat a protein bar a day, that's it. You know, wow. I was like, um, and before I started sort of the arduous journey of trying to recover, yeah. I was 118 pounds. 118. Oh, my goodness. That's shocking. So, my mother came to visit at the end of my studying there and i met her at the airport and she saw me 10 yards away or so and she just broke down crying she had no idea that it was that bad um yeah 118 pounds i was very gaunt i was i mean i have pictures of this i was very sickly and my mom and i over the next 
month we traveled around and even my friend Kyle came out to visit me because oh. he knew I was struggling. Such a beautiful gesture. I would, yeah. I, I love him forever for that gesture. And, um, yeah, we traveled around and, and it was the first time I started thinking about, can I do this? Can yeah. I get back to a quote unquote normal state of like what eating looks like, what health looks like. And, uh, it, um, it, it took a long time. Yeah. It took, so I was, I guess I was 22 then. It probably took another, into my early thirties before I felt like I was fully sort of recovered. Yeah, living a recovered. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I'm in full recovery, yeah. you know, now, but it took a long time. What do you think were the most important, you know, steps or processes within those 10 years in facilitating that recovery? Um <clears throat> saying um being open to trying therapy, okay, was one. The therapist didn't work out. Um but I've had various experiences with therapists that were not always um, the best, but certainly gave me a little sort of ping pong guidance here and there. Yeah. Um, Good enough that they kept you going. Yeah. So, like, I saw it, like, when I came back from Wales, I, um, the sort of the strange thing, if people know me and you know me, Tony, is that um, my mother was living up at the ranch at the time. My father was living in uh, Orange County, um, which is where I grew up for the most part. And I went to live with him yeah. briefly because right. uh, that I didn't have anywhere else to go. Right. And um, I do give him credit for trying to, 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 to be there yeah. and help me in that. Um, you know, he certainly didn't have the language to help, but I think he, in his heart, did want to help. He, yeah. he didn't want his son to die, right? You know, and I, I do, I am grateful for that. My mom would visit, yeah. Um, and I think at this point, they were still together, separated. I can't remember. They they got divorced, and then they remarried each other again, and then got divorced. Right. It was very healthy, right? Um, <laughs> uh, traditional, yeah, very traditional. But I, I, um, I think. I think certainly having a place to be was yeah. part of it. Having um, uh, my mom would make me sort of, um, and I think this was helpful, uh, like menus. Okay. Sort of like, hey, like, you know, just to try to like lightly guide me toward like right. not having the stress of like thinking about what I was eating. Yeah. You know? Kind of some structural interventions. Yeah. yeah, she she tried to do that. And I remember, you know, in the morning I would wake up and have like big old, sh- you know, m- smoothies with like peanut butter and she'd pour like olive oil in there yeah. just to like get fat into my body, yeah. you know. And uh, I would still like go for, you know, light walks, you know, here yeah. and there um, with her. Uh, and... Uh, and I remember, um, I remember there was there was at one point conversation around like a, a an intervention of like forced feeding, you know, oh, like wow. through tubes, right? 
And I, that I did not want to do like that. I was terrified of, and I felt, um, yeah, I just didn't want to go that route. And so I I think like that was like a motivator to like, really like, okay, I got to work on this eating, you know? And I, I was eating and I was putting calories into my body, but emotionally and mentally still had so, so far to go. Yeah. You know? Yes. Through that process, as you were really introducing food again and more calories, were you still fighting that that desire inside to want to restrict and to want to control? 100%. 100%. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, were you cognitively really talking yourself through, I'm going to have to suck this one down because I don't want the feeding to? Absolutely. I mean, were you really yeah. talking yourself through it? Yeah. Okay. Also, like, I had a motivator of, like, at that point, I think, like, I do want to live. Like, I don't want to get down to 118 pounds again. I don't want the doctor telling me my heart's going to stop. Like, um, I had fear of that. Like, and so I realized, like, then um, the suicidal ideation I had was real. Right. You know, because I was hopeless. I felt alone. But I I did realize I didn't want to die. You know? Yeah, it sounds like at that point you did start fighting for your life, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So... I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And I'm wondering what else I think it's important for the listeners to understand that was really what were the most significant parts of the things that you needed for your recovery. Because what I'm hearing so far is once there was acknowledgement of the disorder and the fact that your parents knew, the you know, there was no more hiding this, you know, you had come to your own understanding that I'm going to die if I continue doing this. And then, so talking about it, having people know about it, talking about it, um, understanding the true ramifications of, of what was happening within your body, that this all was, you know, the the detrimental parts of the change that, that you know, kind of put you in a new trajectory. The interesting thing was I, even though I was seeing a therapist and um, it was still hard to talk about it. Like, I, I don't think I was, even at that point, you know, at, you know, however old I was, uh, 23, 24, around there, I wasn't ready to talk about it. Like, I mm. I just, even then, I still felt like I didn't know how to talk about it. I remember yeah. feeling very strongly that, that I wanted people to understand, yeah. but I don't know how to make them understand. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, was it a purposeful not wanting to talk about it, or is I don't know how to talk about it? It was the, I don't know, and, um, you know, and I... I I remember very distinctly like going like, you know, I, I went to a, a high school that was very sort of, we had a great soccer team. We were the number one team in the nation. Yeah. And uh, we'd have these um, annual sort of like alumni soccer games, you know? And I, those were all like socially anxious person. Those are always terrifying for me, but I, I remember going yeah. um, in newly recovery and being thin yeah. but getting down on the field and sort of you know yeah again feeling i didn't have the the muscle or the heart right. ready to do it yet and i remember my old coach who kind of is a dick yeah uh telling me like as we were walking off the field um just go eat a sandwich mm. and i remember I, I remember thinking at the time in that moment feeling so unseen Oh, yeah. And so just, fuck, this guy doesn't get it. Right. And I, I, I've i looked back on that 
you know, experience now with more perspective and understanding that like he didn't have the language, maybe he didn't yeah. have the education. And so I, I, I look back at him with a bit more kindness, but, but I couldn't fault, like, right. uh, I bring that up because I couldn't in that moment say to him, look, dude, I'm struggling with anorexia. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't say it yet. Yeah. I couldn't really talk about it yet. Yeah. So it was really just a unvoiced recovery for the first few years where I was just, it was really just about getting food in my body. Okay. And the more emotional processing stuff came in my mid to late twenties when I, when I really started to kind of try to write about it more personally and seeing various therapists, um, you know, and, um, but I, I, I still actually believe that the, the, the most, uh, for me, just overall, the most sort of like growth I've had emotionally and mentally has been in my thirties Okay, and seeing the therapist that I'm seeing now, Yeah, you know, um, but yeah. Well, one of the things you and I talked about before we even started this podcast this morning was talking about <laughs> this idea of the healing aspect of talking about it mm -hmm. and, and that being such a significant part of your continued recovery. And like you said, that really started in your thirties and, you know, and, and going to, you know, continuing in on your own personal journey of psychotherapy. Um, but again, also, I don't, I don't know if this is what you would say, so correct me or, or but being more vulnerable and open with friends and, you know, and, and, you know, people whom you trust and, and sharing your experience. And I, so maybe talk about that if I'm yeah, on the no, right I, path. Yeah, I, I, 100%. I mean, I, I, I think I've learned over the last 10 years and it started with just me, you know, kind of sharing some things on my blog, you know, sharing, uh, more vulnerable things, about my experience uh, with anorexia. Which really only started how long ago? Um, I think there's some early stuff. Like, I did, I remember writing about, um, it's so interesting. Uh, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but I did, I remember like, after I got back from Wales, I remember writing just probably 30,000 words wow. on my experience in Wales and it was such a like looking back on it I it's such a interesting insight into like um like I was it was like a spin on it it wasn't a healthy look at it at my eating disorder it's almost like a uh a, I was trying to process it through a lens of like um was still somewhat romanticized or a bit romanticized a bit like um uh a bit like um i wasn't i just wasn't being vulnerable and i wasn't being true it oh, wasn't okay. authentic like like it had a bit of spin to it that yeah um were you did it almost feel like you were somewhat dissociated like you were writing somebody else's story kind of okay. yeah and i think like you know the you know, you, you're the therapist, you mm -hmm. tell me, but like, it feels like 
the thing about these traumatic experiences that like, of course, like right after you experience them, then you're not going to be able to fully authentically engage with it until like years down the line when you've like fully like have had time to process and then look back, you know? Right. Um, So it makes sense that that, that sort of my writing in that period, but I bring that up because I, I did share that with a few people like via email, you know? Yeah. And uh, like close friends and then um, I did have an old blog that I would write a little bit about sort of my mental health, um, you know, in my late 20s. Mm. But the real work, I feel like, has been in my 30s with my sort of current uh, blog and my current writing and the current work I'm doing with Yumi Empathy right. is I feel like... I feel like recognizing that I needed to open my heart um, and and change it and take it out from the heart guard and really um, look inward and and ask those questions like that's the thing that really saved my life. Wow, you know, and I, I've I've it's been proven over and over again in my um, interactions with with listeners of this show and with um, readers of my blog. Um, vulnerability and empathy are such huge i feel like are foundational parts of mental health and healing and recovery um because if we're not being true to ourselves and i think being true to ourselves is recognizing the matters of the heart and looking inward and and understanding what's going on there um we're not going to be able to connect with others unless we're doing that. Right. And I feel like, like I want more and more of that in the world. I, I feel like the less we do of that, the less we're connecting, the less we're engaging on a level that's um, useful and progressive emotionally and, and um, destigmatizing. And it's, it's, there's this, idea that um sorry i'm losing my train of thought hold on um so i feel very strongly that our hearts um are you know the secret to it all um they're the secret to self-acceptance and self-discovery and self-love and connection and empathy. And I just feel like those components of mental health are where we need to start. Yeah. Um, and if we don't have those components, I think, I don't think it goes as well. <laughs> um, and, and, and um, yeah, like I, I, I want to dedicate my life to that. Yeah. You know, in right. this show, in, in bigger and brighter things that I'm working on. Like, I, I just want to do more of that and inspire others to lead with their hearts and to open their hearts to people in their lives to inspire that and so on and so right. forth. Um, yeah. Which, you know, me knowing you personally, you know, I, I, I can attest that you know that that is you and your desires and and i know that was even the you know the precipice for starting this podcast and, yeah and absolutely and everything that's been behind it and and yeah i'm in you know complete agreement with you and that's in some respects been you know my work in psychotherapy is 
to ultimately be able to help people create the same thing in their lives. And what I've seen clinically over the years of work uh, is, you know, that the psychotherapy work that I, I do as a marriage and family therapist is, is so relationally based. And I like that because the goal for me is, you know, a lot of people come into psychotherapy, not being in a place to, to know how to connect you know, and for, and for many reasons, um, have formed you know a non-connective interpersonal you know relational stance. Mm. You know, and a, and a lot of which you know neuroscience has has really informed us in terms of the you know the the why to that question. You know, you know why we what I what I call we create relational templates out of our early social environment that teaches us. And, and shapes who we're going to be and the protective nature and the adaptive nature of who we're going to be. And, and a lot of it, you know, we, I talk about it from a self-preservation point of view, and we adapt these self-preserving and defensive types of coping mechanisms or, or relational skills or, or interpersonal dynamics. And a lot of it, unfortunately, doesn't lend itself to authentic connective experiences. Right. And you're sharing about the you know your capacities to be now vulnerable you know demonstrate some you know i think a lot of your own personal growth because you know i see that in clients that i work with and and getting them and and working through their you know the, the presenting issues presenting dynamics to get them into a relationally into a relationally healthy place that allows them to be connective yeah and allows them mm-hmm. to tolerate the experience of vulnerability allows them to tolerate the um, the uncomfortability or the distress that comes with being known, even though I think most of us seek to be known, there's a tremendous amount of of distress that still comes with that potentially, if that has not been a safe thing for us to ever do, yeah, or if we never learned to do it, you know, if if the social environment just never allowed for that to happen. So, you know, I, I think you and I both have very similar goals in in the different work that we do, but we're both looking for people to have the same experience or outcome, you know, which is, which is true, authentic connection and healing and, uh, and to make whatever it is that, that we struggle with, you know, whether it's anorexia or body dysmorphic disorder, depression, anxiety, um, more severe mental illnesses is, you know, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia or just, uh, you name it. I mean, just, you know, whatever the, the issue is, is to get people to a place of connectivity and, and looking at that as, as a true um, transformational experience. I mean, yeah. you know, ultimately is a very, yeah, transformational. I, I, you know, I feel it is my job and duty to create more and more safe spaces like that and, and, and have it be a sort of an effect that, goes out into the world and, and, and gets more and more like that safer spaces and more right. people doing this because the truth is like, we're all in this together. Yeah. I feel like there is so much, you know, I, I know it, there's so much isolating in mental health Yeah. Um, out of protection, out of all sorts of reasons. Right. But if we can find it in our hearts to be vulnerable and to share, yeah. there's so much healing in that you know recognizing that you're not alone recognizing that um the thing you've been feeling is very similar to this thing this stranger is feeling yeah the truth is we all have hearts every single feely human among us has a heart 
and let's start there because yeah. the things that we're struggling with are universal um but they're also just things sure. we're all human and uh, and i feel like we need to start there and work on that level um the other thing i wanted to say is that like <clears throat> i've gotten like the response to me talking about my eating disorders like oh how do you deal with being a man who has had anorexia or struggled with an eating disorder right isn't that sort of uh commonly associated with women mm. and the truth is no like right. i i don't i don't like to think about it that way right i'm just a human who's had this thing in my life this this stumbling block right uh just like you and Eating disorders don't discriminate. No, they don't. You know? Right. Um, anyone can struggle with an eating disorder. And, like, my message to men is that, is all of this. Open your heart. Right. Like, there's nothing, like, there's there's nothing more valuable and strong and beautiful and sexy than someone opening their heart and talking about their feelings and their struggles. Yeah. Like, I... You know, and so like my my hope is that like more and more people, including men and including sort of marginalized groups, feel empowered to do that. Yeah. So we can break down these walls that that make us feel like we're wrong or scared or we're gonna be judged. Yeah. You know? Right. No, that's so true. Yeah. Um I do have a qu- couple of questions here. From, yeah, I was going to say, we, we've got listener questions, so yeah. why don't we go to those? <clears throat> so one of them is, uh, do you have a mantra or mantras that help you regain perspective upon particularly detrimental thought processes? Um, I, I guess I do. Um, some of which is, is, is recognizing that the thing that I'm experiencing will pass. You you right. touched upon that at some point today, um, and also what's helped me is like recognizing that I've been there before. Like yeah. when I'm struggling, like in a dark, depressive mood, um, I can not always, but I can sometimes get to a point where like this will pass. You've been here before. You're resilient. You can get through it again. Yeah. You know those types of things. Um, you know, I've been very open about like the struggles I've had with just self-esteem and feeling like I don't deserve love. Mm. Uh, and so reminding myself that I do say you are loved, you are capable, yeah. you are worthy, you know, you are not your eating disorder. You are not your sadness. You are more than that. You yeah. know, those types of things help me a lot. Um, yeah. So that's, that would be my answer to that. Uh, the other question is, how can I best support someone who is in recovery from an eating disorder or what do you wish people knew about eating disorder? So there's two questions there. How can I support someone who is in recovery? Um, <clears throat> we talked about this a bit. Uh, I think be, being there, listening, and I think I'd like your yeah. answer to this too. My answer would be uh, being there, listening, making sure you know uh, or they know that you care about them, that you love them. Um, also don't necessarily, and maybe Tony has a different perspective on this, mention weight or mention food specifically, but you can, I feel, tell them directly that you are worried about them, that, um, you know, uh, yeah, that you're worried about them, that you're worried about their health, that you're worried about their life. Um, uh, and then, 
I again, I wish people knew that there's really no discriminating when it comes to eating disorders. Also, that the mort- mortality rate is the highest. Wow. Um, did you know that? No. Uh- uh, I forgot the source. I'll link to it in the yeah. show notes for this episode. But the mor- mortality rate is highest uh, in those who struggle with eating disorders, wow. which is – it makes sense to me because there is such a um, – the crossover of suicidal uh, ideation, right. but then the, the, physical, the physical ramifications right. of it. You know, right. my heart almost stopped. Yeah, exactly. You know, like uh, are, are huge. It's working on a number of levels there. Um so my question to you, yeah, how can you best support someone who's in recovery? From yeah, I mean, that's a. I like what you said, and and again, this isn't necessarily something that I treat, um, meaning eating disorders, but but I do think that you know tapping into you know basically what you had said known, which was checking in with people, you know, letting me know that you care and letting you know that you're interested and, you know, letting them know that, you know, that they're important to you. And yeah, you know, like I said, it's, you know, and that you're there to listen, you know, and that, that you're available and you care and you want to listen. Uh, you want to understand, you know, that they're important. You want to understand. I mean, yeah. to me, that you know, those are valuable tools, you know, with, with people who are dealing with virtually anything. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. there's a strong crossover into totally. help me understand what are you going through? What does that feel like? How can I help? What do you need from me? Um, I think those are just such great, you know, we, we taped our podcast this morning on suicide and we talked a lot about that. Just, you know, checking in with people, not being afraid to check in, ask them the questions. Um, how are you doing? You know, you are concerning me and, um, I care about you. Yeah. Things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple more questions here. One is, what are some things that help you through slips and relapses? Um, you know, it's been a while since I've had a relapse of my eating disorder. Um, and it's hard, it's, it's hard for me to think about this one because I, I don't entirely remember. Um, but I'll just like speak to my sort of place where I'm at now. I still, I don't relapse, but I still have moments, even now at 37, where I do, I'm not triggered, but I am hypersensitive to any sort of, like, I I remember, uh, this was just like last month, we were eating dinner at um, uh, a rib place, like a rib restaurant for Rich's birthday, Jessica's dad's birthday. And I, I, I went into the restaurant and I, I, I looked, I, you know, just kind of, it was, you know, just being observational, looking around and, and I had this sense that like, man, everyone here is like tremendously overweight. Wow. I had that thought. Yeah. And it made me feel gross. Mm. And I, I, and I had to check in with myself and say, is this your eating disorder? Is this like, is, yeah. is this like remnants of like what's going on here? And I, I don't believe it is. Yeah. I think it's a, I, I, that's a, I'm sensitive to like, you know, treat your body well, you know, kind right, of thing. Right. Um, but and again, you grew up in a very health conscious. Yeah. Household. So I had to right. check in. So I right. have moments like that. And I just, uh, I think what I would say to this question is just, Check in, 
be kind to yourself when you do yeah. like slip up, you know, because it may happen again, you know, and, and, um, it's not the end of the world, you know? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think compassion is, goes a long way in recovery. Yeah. And I think, um, but I also like, you know, trying to get understanding around why the relapse maybe happened. You know, mm-hmm. it's a great time, I think, for a check-in. Am I stressed? Am I working too hard? Am I too disconnected? Um, you know, what might be happening that precipitated me, you know, for a relapse? Mm-hmm. Definitely a great time to, to maybe get back into psychotherapy or work with your therapist uh, or totally. nutritionist. Yeah. You know, if, if that's... Um, you know, if that's something that you're not currently doing to, yeah. to again, just check in and see what might be happening. Totally. So. Um, last question from uh, listeners here. Uh, at what age, or at that age, I guess uh, they mean when I was sort of in the throes of my anorexia, how did you perceive what was quote unquote normal or acceptable eating patterns and what wasn't? And how did you work around your decisions to choose between the two uh, at that time? Um I don't think I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I knew, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's so hard to know, like when you're sick, you know, when you're, when you're blinded by a very powerful mental illness disorder, uh, it really is hard to know what is acceptable and what is normal and, and what is not. Because um, a lot of the thinking at that point is very disordered or uh, distorted. It's I mean, very, very distorted, distorted, yeah. Yeah. Like you, like I felt like, oh, this is the right path, you know. I, um, you know, I, I think, and even if I did, like if, if maybe something creeped in, because I, I just had a memory where I was sitting in the cafeteria at the university and just like on the very exterior sitting and just like drinking black coffee and eating my protein bar and everyone else is just like, you know, yucking up. And and I was just by myself sitting there. And I think I did feel a little bit like, Oh, I'm weird. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the outcast again. Wow. Uh, so I did maybe have a sense, but like, like that wasn't going to change me. Like I, like it's so strong. It's so compelling to hold on to this, this thing. And so, um, like you can have that insight, but not have the insight of like, Oh, like you should probably be eating more, you know? Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's not really an answer, but that's, that's what I have. Yeah. I think that that's an answer. Well, yeah, anything else you have for I, me? I I feel like it's probably time to wrap up unless there's something that you we can make add or... we can we can make love. Well, let's not. Okay. <laughs> but how about we go on that bike ride we talked about? That sounds amazing. All right. Let's, let's do, do that. that. Uh well, listeners, thank you uh for being here. Um I guess you should be doing this part. Right? Uh, should we just turn this thing around? So, yeah, just say this last part that's highlighted and thank the listeners and do all the stuff I usually do. Wow, that sounded controlling. <laughs> do it now, Tony. <laughs> and do it like this. And um, well, first, I'd like to just thank Known Wells for sharing his, um, you know, what can be a very difficult story to share. But thank I you. appreciate your vulnerability yeah. and, and your willingness to share that with your listeners. And um, 
through looking at our community online, I know they they appreciate you and they pre- appreciate your vulnerability. So thanks, so, man. Yeah, thanks. I, I it really is uh, a delight that you're part of this in, in whatever way you are, and uh, um, yeah, I'm happy to do this. Cool. So, well, yeah. it's and it was fun today to switch roles, and it was great to again kind of facilitate you know your story. So the listeners understand more about what your personal journey is and yeah. and what really was behind the creation of you me empathy yeah no, I you know appreciate and, that. and the journey that really really culminated in in you you know putting together this uh, I think what's really become a really amazing community of, of listeners Absolutely. and uh, and just yeah. a great place to continue to, to destigmatize mental health and um, you know and and hopefully you know you and I are here to provide a little bit of education um, you know but with anything that we share, you know, always seek out a professional's, uh, uh, opinion, support. 100%. You know, we're, we're here for the, uh, hopefully some, some, some knowledge, but, uh, but always seek out a professional. And, uh, with that, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh, that's so sweet. What do I say? Big blue marble. (laughs) I love it. Good job.